continue on. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 tonight, looking at, well, we're looking at more than uh, verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 through 20, it should say there. I got my slide wrong. But we're talking about kingdom collisions. Uh, Nehemiah had a collision. He had some opposition, some people who uh, got in the way of what it seemed like um, was his plan and God's work in rebuilding Jerusalem. And so um, we know in the physical, there's always collisions, right? There's things that just clash, things that um, when they cross paths, they just don't go together very well. It's kind of like uh, in the sports world, if you care about college sports, um, KU and K-State, like they just clash, don't they? Or um, maybe, uh, maybe it's like brushing your teeth and then drinking orange juice. It doesn't go well together if you've ever tried it. Or um, uh, credit cards and good decisions. They just, don't, they just don't work well together. Mullets and job interviews never end well. There's just lots of things in life that we know, um, uh, they just clash in the physical and if you're going to be a disciple maker, you got to know that there are uh, going to be times where as you press forth God's kingdom, as you spread the message, the good news of Jesus is life, death, resurrection, um, then you're going to have opposition. You're going to have people, uh, you're going to have circumstances, you're going to have spiritual warfare. And the more and more and more that you dig into the mission of God, you find out that there is a whole bunch going on behind the scenes. There's in the spiritual realm, um, uh, there's battles being fought. And we know uh, what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago conquered um, the primary spiritual battle, that sin had power uh, and that we would die as sinners and be separated from God and that through Christ we now can be reconciled to him and eternally be with him in the presence of the Lord. And so um, we got to still, though, proclaim that message. And we're going to take it to the ends of the earth, and there's going to be opposition in that, and we know um, the devil doesn't want that. And so even though he doesn't have the power that he once had in death, he um, is like a little yippity dog with a big bad bark, and he wants uh, us to believe um, that he's got power that he doesn't have anymore. And so he's going to make it known, and he's going to be speaking to people and lying to people and accusing people. And you're going to see in the physical, people step up and oppose the work of God. But you need to know that there's things happening in the, the, the spiritual realms. And so as we walk through this tonight, I want you ultimately to see um, when you make disciples, you will have haters. You will have people who oppose it. But not only should you expect it, you need to know, and this is the, this is the key, and I hope by the end of tonight um, you see this, that, that haters, that the people on earth opposing the work of God are not stumbling blocks, they're building blocks. They're not stumbling blocks. They're not something that you need to get past. Oh, there's someone trying to stop the work of God, just like we see with Nehemiah tonight. Got to get past them so we can continue the mission. They are the mission. And as we see in the gospel, we were all uh, once haters and under the wrath of God. And the kingdom of God was built in our own hearts and on our own backs as we received the gospel. Um, we got to recognize that the people who hate God now, they're not, they're not something to get past. They are um, they're the fertile soil that is the kingdom being built um, as God uh, draws them to repentance. And so let's not lose sight of what um, what they really are. The battle's not against flesh and blood. It's in the spiritual realm. And so we're going to walk through this tonight, verses 9 through 20. We're going to talk about that spiritual collision, dark and light, good and evil. And as disciple makers, got to be familiar with it. So let's jump in. Verse 9 says, 
Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So remember, early in chapter 2, Nehemiah stood before the king, the Persian king, and said, Hey, I got this big vision. I want to go back to my homeland and rebuild things. Because his heart had been broken for the people in Jerusalem. And he prayed and he felt like God was leading him in this direction. So he took that risk, went before the king, and now the king has sent him off with a blessing uh, to go back to Jerusalem. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I had I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. And there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest, the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Those two verses there that we could preach entire sermons about vision casting and leadership from those two verses. Verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. All right, six things we're going to see when it comes to kingdom collisions. You got to be prepared for if you're going to be a disciple maker and help people to follow Jesus. We see we're going to walk through this verse by verse here. Going back to verses 9 and 10, the first thing we see is you've got to expect opposition. You've got to expect opposition. It says, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So we didn't hear in the previous uh, verses that Nehemiah asked for officers. We, we didn't hear him ask the king for horsemen. But even kings know, ultimately, um, that you can expect haters. There's going to be people along the way that you're going to need some help with. Now, it's interesting because it mentions two guys here. Later on, it mentions a third that we don't know too much about. But these two guys are interesting. It says, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard this, and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Notice how, notice how it wasn't that they hated Nehemiah, so to speak, but they just hated the fact that someone cared about these people. Someone cared about people. Someone loves God and loves people. It's not that he had a horrible personality. It's not that he himself was the one they despised, but they despised the fact that someone would love other people. Now, Sanballat, what do we know about him? He was ultimately the governor of Samaria, which was just north of Jerusalem. And his, his name um, means sin gives life. How would you like that name? Sin gives life. I think it's 
the opposite in reality, but that is his name. As far as we know, he had a synchristic um, uh, religion, which means that they would take bits and pieces of different religions, probably partially um, Judaism at that point, the Judeo faith, and they would have taken it with um, uh, several other types of worship of other false gods, and they would have uh, combined it for one religion. That's syncretism, is when you take a whole bunch of stuff and you add it into one, make your own religion. Um, we do that a lot nowadays, by the way. But anyway, uh, so there's no real evidence. He seems like he's more of an outsider who just doesn't want that um, want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. It might have hurt him uh, economically um, because, again, the king said, you got to give them, like the p- people around, um, you, you gotta, you're going to be blessing Nehemiah. You're going to give him lumber. You're going to give him stuff. And so they might have been ticked about that. But Tobiah, he's an interesting dude. He's got a little bit of a backstory. Um, again, when you read Nehemiah, you also got to study Ezra and even to an extent um, Daniel and, and Esther because they all happen around at the same time. And by same time, I mean within 70, 80 years of each other. But particularly Ezra and Nehemiah because the same king that Nehemiah went before um, in the in the earlier verses is the one that 13 years earlier uh, Ezra had gone before. Now, it says Tobiah was the one that had displeased them greatly. These two guys. So what do we know about Tobiah? If you go back to uh, Ezra chapter 2, verse 60, um, you will see that there was a whole bunch of people Ezra was calling back, the Jews, and they were going to go back from exile to Jerusalem, and they had intermarried with a whole bunch of people they shouldn't have married. He says, we've got to repent of this. And so they all got together, and they had to prove that their fathers were true Israelites in order to be part of this remnant that was going back to, from exile. And so it lists off a whole bunch of people who go back. But guess who got excluded? Verse 60, it says, Tobiah. He didn't make it in. He couldn't prove that his fathers were true Israelites, and so he got left behind. His name means the Lord is good. From what we understand, he wanted to be a Jew. He wanted to have a relationship with the God of the Bible. And yet, because of his actions, he had been rejected. You see, that's the thing about haters. you got to expect opposition, but you don't always know where it's coming from. There's going to be people who, who you know um, from a million miles away, they're going to hate Christianity and they're not going to want this to thrive. You just ain't even got to guess. Because the way they talk, the way they, the, the, what they believe, um, you, you see people on the news, you, hear, you just know there are certain people out there that just, rat, they just, they just don't like God. But then there's people close to you. People that maybe um, you would think should be supportive, and they're not. I mean, this dude um, was rejected, and he was the governor just east of Jerusalem, and he's thinking to himself, (laughs) not only could I not make it back here, but now I'm right next to Jerusalem. I wanted to be in Jerusalem. I wanted to go back and rebuild with Ezra, and now someone else is going to come and do it? Why should you get the blessing that I didn't get? You know, it's been interesting um, recently as we've been walking through as a church, uh, obviously searching for facilities and um, just going through this process of a a capital campaign and all that goes with it. Um, I've talked a little bit about it in the past. Man, 
I've never been through something like this, and so it's all pretty new to me. But we didn't know how the congregation would uh, react to it. And as we started talking over the last couple months and having the vision nights and uh, talking about raising money and whatnot, we've had people not come out of the woodwork, but people speak up. People got opinions, and it's good um, for the most part to have people engaged in it. And so I'll get phone calls that I wouldn't have got normally or people stop by the office that normally wouldn't have stopped by. Um, but even the other day, I got, I got an anonymous letter. And if you sent the anonymous letter, just come talk to me. <laughs> it's good. It's good to just talk. Um, and so I didn't know how to feel about an anonymous letter. It just was from uh, a member or members of the church that, that um, made it known that it was anonymous and, and, and didn't want to obviously be known. But they had a whole list of things that they um, would like. They were polite. It was, it was nice. Like it wasn't a, a mean letter. Um, but they um, had a whole bunch of different points that would have made for incredible discussion. Like I would have loved to have that discussion. But of course, it's anonymous. So what do you, what do, you do with that? But man, I'll tell you what, that kept me up at night. Not, not what was in the letter, but what, how it was done, that it was anonymous. And I thought, what? What in the world? What do I do with that? Um, and so I, I brought together a few of the leaders, and, and I showed them the letter, and I said, what are your thoughts? Um, and, you know, you get various responses. You know, well, you know what? If it's anonymous, you just, you can't, you know, that's the typical thing, right? If it's anonymous, you just got to throw it away. You can't, you, can't, you can't even listen to it. I said, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. One of them said, well, you know, well, I don't know about this, but maybe, you know, what they said over here was good. And, and overall, the re- response was, yeah, they're just opposing it or, or let's, just, let's just get rid of it. Let's just move on. Let's just disregard it. And I said, I, I want you to sit in this moment and, and um, be slow to anger. And be slow to uh, condemn someone as a hater. Our society loves that. We love, to, we love to say, well, here's someone who's different than me. Here's someone who's on the opposite side. Here's someone who seems like maybe they're opposing something. And we love to pick sides. And it was a good teaching moment because, you know, the Lord can speak through them. Even if we wouldn't have done it that way, we might not have ever said, hey, you should write anonymous letters. Um, that's how they chose to do it. And you know what? The Lord can still speak through them. Do I wish they did it that way? No. But at the same time, does it make him a hater? No. But you know, that was the first instinct, first reaction for anyone who heard that letter. Hater! And you got to be careful. Um, not everyone in the kingdom, or even who seems like they could be opposing it or really opposing it. Some just want their voices heard. Some, maybe even Tobiah, might raise a stink. Not because they, they're, they're, they're mad um, at God, but they just want to be included. And maybe they don't feel like their voice is heard. Maybe there's something that happened in their past. This is why when you look at enemies, when you look at people that Jesus says, well, you've got to love them, not hate them. You've got to see them as people, not obstacles. You've got to shepherd their hearts. You've got to care about them. And you've got to think about them instead of just saying, in general, I've got to get away from that person. Or that person is trying to stop the work of God. got to care about people. A few things that we learned from Scripture I'll rifle off for you before we move on to the next point. Um, when it comes to opposition, um, if you're going to go share your faith with people, if you're going to start Bible studies, if you're, if you're going to plant churches, if you're going to do whatever it is the Lord has called you to do in ministering, uh, don't be surprised, but be ready. God has given us the armor of God. We talked about that in Ephesians 6. Don't be caught off guard. That's number one. Number two, don't take it personal. Remember it might be in the physical, but it's spiritual. If you got opposition, if you got people who, who are against whatever God might be doing, um, 
It's always spiritual. There's something going on behind it. Number three, and this is maybe the more important one, you've got to remember that the kingdom of God, where Jesus is king, we're the servants, and we want this thing to spread throughout all the world. We want everyone to be saved, everyone to know the Lord. The kingdom is built not by bypassing their enemy, but by your response to your enemy. It's the grace that you show them. It's the love that you show them. It's pulling back and saying, you know what? I'm not just going to get past you. You're not just, again, a stumbling block. You are a building block. The Lord wants to save you. The Lord wants to grow you. And you got to stop and pull back and make sure that you don't race past your enemies to finish some project. But your enemies need the Lord. Again, I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. Um, the people who killed Jesus, the very people who, who killed him, who wanted to hurt him, were the very people he was dying for. Um, that's not lost on us. Number two, and here's what I want to mention about this. If you read the passage um, in its fullness like we did to start this, this is one of those nuances that if you're at home, you might just bypass. But th- th- there's just a little nuance here and this one verse that has a lot of power. And so slow down when you're reading scripture. Um, see, see how it's segmented. You hear about the haters, the opposition at the beginning of this passage. You hear about it at the end. But in the middle, in between those two things is sandwiched Nehemiah's response. And that's where we see um, the grace of God and the power in this. In verse 11, after he um, uh, saw that there were haters, it says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Second thing we see, number one, you got to expect opposition, but number two, you got to go anyway. It says, so I went, so I went. Those are three powerful words. How do you typically respond to criticism? When someone criticizes you, your ideas, how does it make you feel? You get discouraged? Do you sulk? It's never fun to hear someone tell you that, that, that uh, you're doing something wrong. It stinks. Some of us get discouraged. Some of us just stop. There's that old saying, right, uh, when it comes to doing the Lord's work, and if you feel discouraged and you want to just stop, that old saying is don't put periods where the Lord is putting commas, right? You might pause for a moment and say, hmm, there is some opposition. This isn't smooth sailing, but God's called me to this, and I got to continue on. I got to continue on. You know, we talk about Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And remember, it's called the commission, not the omission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. It's about what we are to do, not what we're missing out on, not what we're neglecting, not what we're getting discouraged and stopping in, not what we say, well, we'll do this. We'll go make disciples until someone stands in our way or until it gets too hard. No, it's not the great omission. It's the great commission. And ultimately, you can focus in life and when it comes to disciple making on who's or what's stopping you or who's with you. And when the one who's with you is stronger than what could ever stop you, you got to understand the powers on your side. And the presence of the great, the presence of God is the promise of the Great Commission. He says, "Go make disciples." But the end of those verses says, "And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age." There's going to be a million things trying to stop you: circumstances, people, some you expect, some you don't expect, things that catch you off guard. But ultimately, if God's with you, and when it comes to disciple making, you ain't got to guess if the Lord's hand is on it. 
then all the power is on your side. And if you're going to be a disciple maker, you've got to recognize that your love, just like, just like Jeremiah says, the welfare of the people, not Jeremiah, Nehemiah, the welfare of the people. That's what they were ticked off at, that someone cared about people. Your love for God, your love for people needs to outweigh your fear of others. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you're going to come face to face with that reality. Am I more scared of what other people think or the roadblocks in my way than I have love in my heart for the Lord, his mission, his people, his kingdom? You go anyway. You co-worker, you hear their story, you know they need the Lord, you know they need to hear the gospel, but you say, I don't want to share it because I could risk my job. You go anyway. You got a neighbor, you know they need the Lord, maybe they're lonely, maybe they uh, lost a spouse, maybe they seem angry, but you think, gosh, I've lived here for a lot of years and I've never talked to them about spiritual things. It's going to be awkward to, out of the blue, just start talking about spiritual stuff. You go anyway. You go anyway. You got a child who maybe is rebelling right now. They don't seem interested in spiritual things. And you say, I don't want to push them further away. I, well, you need to be sensitive and in tune with the Spirit. But ultimately, you don't pull back from disciple making. You go anyway. There's going to be a million things, million excuses, million things that cater to insecurities. But you've got to stop and say, no. It's not about what's stopping me. It's about who's with me. And the Lord is with disciple makers. That's exciting. I remember when I um, lived here eight years ago and we were helping to start this church. Um, we didn't have hardly anyone going to Cross Point Salina, but I worked at um, a healthcare company in town and we had 22 doctors all around Salina. We had nurses. We had, I mean, just a plethora of um, folks working in the healthcare field. And there was medical records, people, there was all kinds of administration, all kinds of people. And then there's one job at the very bottom of the totem pole. There's the courier. Like the kind that if you get blood drawn or x-rays done or even stool samples and they need to go from one facility to the next and you don't ever think about how it gets there, I helped to get it there. It was just a gross kind of job. It was, the, it was one of a kind. But I was at the bottom of the totem pole. But I, I, I said, you know what? That's my mission field. And so I started to get bold. And I started to walk around. And as I'd walk, I had a route. I'd go on four times a day. And I'd just go back and forth, back and forth in a circle. And I would pray. And I had 20-second encounters with people a couple times a day. And the same people. I never had much time with any one person. Um, but I would be praying. I'd be praying. I'd be praying. Man, I pushed the boundaries. I knew um, when this church launched, I was like, I'm going to send out an email. Email to, on the church on the on the work website, um, and I asked permission. I'm like, yeah, you could. I'm not sure how it's going to be received. But man, I sent out emails. I, I I pushed I pushed the boundaries, and people came to know um, that that I knew the Lord, that I loved the Lord, and they might not have loved what I was doing, but they respected it. And there were times where people would come to me that they wouldn't come to other people, and I could tell the way they looked at me. They started looking at me different because they saw that there was a light in me, and ultimately they wanted it. And there was one gal in particular who um, she would mock me, man, all the time, all the time. She'd say, look at you, you little church boy. And she would just, 
that was just kind of her 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 way of doing things. And um, man, I wouldn't back down. And I, I I would come at her and I would say, "Listen, you you want what I have, and so I know you're teasing me, but ultimately you're doing it because you're striking up conversation. You want me to tell you about what I got, don't you?" And I would push the limit, and she would go and get up here, and I would get up here, and we we would we would ultimately I didn't. That was the weirdest form of ministry that I ever had. But man, we 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 talked about Jesus. Man, her whole family comes here now. She knows the Lord. Her family knows the Lord. I officiated her wedding a couple of years ago. I can tell you right off the top of my head, six, I can tell you at least half a dozen people in their families who, who are at Crosspoint right now whose lives have been transformed by Jesus because God got a hold of their hearts. God's doing the work, but you got the message. You're the conduit. You're the carrier of this thing. And to be a disciple maker doesn't mean that you got to do the spiritual work. Only God can do the spiritual work. But in the physical, you got to be the one to take that message. You got to take it to people. There's going to be a million oppositions. You go anyway. Verses 12 through 16. He says, Then I arose in the night. I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. Interesting, the the details that he gives about this. Like, this is very, he's a planner. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. He went all around Jerusalem to three full sides, and then he backtracked all, all around. He went all over the place to see. Fun little fact, this is for some of you, you like stuff like this, but um, there was ruins everywhere around Jerusalem that had been destroyed in the last, at that point, 150 years from 580, yeah, 587 on to this point around 445 BC. Um, the Jerusalem that got rebuilt was actually smaller than the original city, but anyway. Um, you see that in scripture. The The first temple um, was massive. The second temple was much smaller. Um, the first Jerusalem, pretty big. Um, Jerusalem rebuilt, smaller. Anyway. Um, verse 14, Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So his plan was to get people involved. Here's the third thing we see. you got to trade panic for prep or worry for work. So we expect opposition as disciple makers. We go anyway, even when there is opposition, but we trade panic for prep. Now, how many of you guys love exercising? Anybody? One of you. That's not a very good percentage, even in a small crowd. There's, yeah, yeah. Different forms can be a little more enjoyable than uh, than monotony, for sure. Um, here's the irony of exercise. If I say, "How many of you like exercise?" Probably not many going to put their hand up. But if I said, how many of you have thought about exercising and and your need for it? Probably most everyone, right? 
Because we know, we look in the mirror, we look at our plates, we see what we're putting in our body, we, we recognize, man, we need to be healthy. And, and the irony of exercise is that for some of us, we, we, we realize you're either going to work your mind or your body. And that you can just be disciplined and go exercise and work your body. But if you don't do it, there's going to be worry on your mind. And you're going to worry, worry, worry. You're going to exhaust yourself mentally over the months and years thinking how much you need to exercise. That ultimately, if you just got busy exercising, (laughs) you'd probably have more energy for a couple reasons. You see, look at Nehemiah and what he does. Four things I'm going to point out in verses 12 through 16. And I want you to think about how he responded to this opposition compared to how you and I might typically respond. Number one, he took initiative. When you and I generally freeze. It says, then I arose. You see, he had a sleepless night because he was working. You and I usually have sleepless nights because we're worrying. But he took initiative. He says, I arose. At night, I went, I did this thing. How many times do you, knowing that God's called you to do something, to reach out to someone, to go build relationships with people that maybe you're uncomfortable building relationships with, being vocal about your faith in scenarios where you wouldn't have spoken about your faith before, but you can tell God's prompting me, he's prompting me, I gotta act on this, and you have analysis paralysis. Do you overthink things? Do you think about all that could go wrong, all that might happen, the risk you got the prompting because you know the reward. This person could end up knowing the Lord, being with him eternally. That's why we do what we do. But you just meditate on the risk. And that risk then turns into worry. But he took initiative. He said, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do this. Number two, he got help when you and I normally stay isolated. says, I and a few men. So he didn't tell a whole bunch of people because that, that was the plan for him at the time. But he said, I got a few men. I, I, I need a few men. It's hard to ask for help. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But he got help. The old devil wants you to stay isolated. He knows when it comes to the spiritual realm. If, he, uh, if you as a disciple maker stay isolated, your thoughts are going to get the best of you. He's going to beat you up. He's going to get you away from the local body. He's going to... Um, He's going to work you. You're going to start questioning things. You're going to start doubting things. And he knows how our minds work. And he's going to prey on that, that weakness. You weren't created to be alone. And the Trinity in and of itself shows community. And we, um, it's not, as disciple makers, we're not out there rogue. It's not, you know, me and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, us four and no more. No, you, you get out there with other people. Because that's how we were created. But he took a few men. He knew he needed him. In verse 13, you see the third thing that he did. He stayed focused. When you and I normally let our minds go wild and we think about all the possibilities, look at the detail of what he did. Like, like we think about, well, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen. We overthink everything, right? Um, but he writes a script of a whole bunch of stuff that he does. He says, oh, I went out by night to the valley gate and then to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And then I inspected the walls and then um, the, they were broken down and there's gates and then destroyed by fire. And he goes on and on and on. He, he gives details. We're like, why are we even got these details? Talking about how he, he just had one animal with him. And then that one animal couldn't fit under a little bit. Like details, details. He was focused. He knew what he was doing. He went after it. He stayed on task. And last but not least, we see in verse 16, he worked his plan 
Many of us don't have a plan. I mean, think about all the things you got plans for, goals for in life. Well, here's my financial plan. Here's what I want my 10-year plan to be. Here's my marriage um, plan. Here's my goals for work. Here's my goals for my health care. Here's my goals for whatever. We've got so many different things that we want to grow in and mature in, but do we have any plans for disciple-making? Do we ever stretch ourselves? Do we ever put goals forth? Do we say, you know what? This week I'm going to talk to one person I wouldn't normally talk to. You know what? In the next three months, uh, once a month, I'm going to talk to a different coworker. I'm going to invite him to coffee outside of work. Like, what plans do we have when it comes to disciple making? Because a lot of us say, well, you can't have plans because, you know, that's not really following the Spirit. No. If you've got your own random plans, then yeah, that's not of God. But God can plan things. He's really good at planning things. If you don't believe me, look at a whole bunch of the scriptures and look at his plans for the temple and look at his plans for heaven and earth and what he's going to do when he restores all things. Like, he's got plans. God doesn't lack plans. Plans aren't evil. But you've got to trade your panic for prep. says that he um, didn't tell the officials where he had gone or what he was doing. He hadn't yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, any of them. The rest were going to do the work. He had a plan. He knew what he was doing. He was staying patient with that plan. Andy talked about last week, working the plan. You've got to have a plan. You've got to work that plan. Here's the bottom line. When it comes to disciple making, you, you, can, you can worry or you can work. You, you can panic or you can prep. You can sit in your insecurity or you can study. You say, I just don't think I can do this. I don't know the Bible well enough. We've got resources for you. If you spent time studying the word like you think like you spent like you spend worrying about what you don't know, you'd you'd be a scholar. You can bow to fear and let it overwhelm you, or you can spend your time training. Like we just we need to get to work. There's so many resources out there, so many things. What's your next step? What do you know? Okay, if I'm insecure here, um, Maybe I do need to get better at this. Maybe I need to, I need to study some evangelism uh, strategies. I need, I need to learn how to, how to share my faith. I need to, there's books I can read. There's things I can watch. There's sermons I can listen to. There's a million things. There's people who, who I can sit down and just talk to and ask questions. So I know they're out there. They're out there. They're in this church. We can hook you up with them. I might be one of them. We can help. That's what discipleship is. We're not going to expect you to go make disciples if we ain't willing to disciple you. That's part of what we hope to accomplish in this gathering here. But what's your next step? You've got to trade that panic for prep. Verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the, walls of Jer- the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Fourth thing we see is kingdom building is a community project. Kingdom building is a community 
project. Now, lots of beautiful things. He casts vision. He leads well. He's an encourager. If we just had uh, a couple hours, we could spend talking about what this says about his leadership abilities and what he does. He, he, he connects with them. He says, we got a common good. We've got um, issues. We're in this together. And then he builds them up. And by the end of it, they're like, strengthen our hands. Let's do this thing. Whatever you're telling us, Nehemiah, it sounds good to us. I mean, this is going to cost them a lot. It ain't easy to get people to work hard. <laughs> if you're a boss, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to get people to work hard. We talk about it all the time, man. What do we do with millennials? Or what do we do with these folks? How do we get people to work hard, 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 hard? Man, Nehemiah got a whole bunch of people to get excited about something that they... It ain't like they didn't know. <laughs> They've had this destroyed for a long time. After all these years, dozens of years, Nehemiah's like, you know what? I know we've tried like a whole bunch to restore this city. I'm going to give it another go. I'm going to give it a go. To some degree, it had been in disrepair for 150 years. It had been rebuilt a little bit. Parts had been attacked and tore down. It had been rebuilt. It had been tore down. Ezra got it going. He started working, but it wasn't completely finished. There's a temple that needs built. There's walls that need to be built. There were houses that need to be built. There was so much that had to be done. But here's two things that you notice. He said, other people. I, I, I. And we, 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 we. Number one, he shows that he needs other people. Mm, we got pride. We don't often want to recognize that we need help. And number two, and maybe the bigger issue, is he recognizes, I got to ask for help. And he asks for help. How many of you like asking for help? Anybody? No. That's false humility. Some of you, two of you, three of you, it took a second, but you got it. False humility in the church and one of the, probably the most practical, like the most common form of false humility in Christianity is when we say, I want to serve other people. I got a servant's heart, but we won't ever receive help ourselves. Chances are unlikely that you're wanting to serve out of a place of pureness, holiness, if you won't receive help. Because what you're saying is, I got something good that someone else needs, and there's no way anyone else could give me something good that I don't already have. Like, I, I'm not going to ask them. I'm not going to trouble them. It's an unhealthy thing. If you're going to serve out of pure heart, you've got to be able to receive when people serve you. It's not easy to ask for help. I, um, I've been planning for a couple months, uh, building a deck on the front. This is one of the last things that we we're going to do with our house. It's a small house and we had renovated a good chunk of it, painted some stuff, um, over the last few years. And, uh, I got to thinking about this deck and I kind of drew out a game plan and then it's only like 10 feet by 15 feet, but it's been a long time since I'd built a deck. I think I built a deck like 10 years ago. And before that, I mean, I've worked factory work, I've worked construction work, I've worked on farms, I've done stuff. And, and so, but it's like 15 years ago. And I'm, I ain't doing that work anymore. And so I started thinking about it. And I started being like, man, this is becoming close to a reality. I'm going to have to get started on this. How am I going to do this? And first, I didn't really want to ask for help. But then I thought, you know what? I need to ask for help. And so um, I asked one of the guys here after cross-training one night. He said, I'm building a deck. I said, where'd you get the lumber? He said, well, here's the place you need to go and, and do some research here, here, here. And I checked it out. And he, he led me to the right place. I was like, okay, good job. Yeah, thanks, man. And, and then um, I started uh digging holes on this thing. And, and so I get my father-in-law over there. Hey, come dig this hole with me. He starts digging holes with me. We, we, we get, uh, 
down a little bit. And so um, then the next day I had another guy. I was like, come on, come on, help dig some more holes. We've got more holes to dig. And he came and he helped me with some stuff. And then I got another guy um, who's got some tools that I needed. He And so I asked him, I said, can I can I get some tools? I didn't want to ask, but I, I asked him for tools. And then at one point I asked my dad, he lives an hour and a half away, but I said, hey, why don't you come help me for a day? And so he did. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to ask him again. But then next week I called him and said, hey, what are you doing? You want to come back again? He came back again. Before you know, I got all kinds of people involved in this thing. Why? Because it's a deck and I'm not good at building decks. And I need help. Church, if I need help by like six or eight dudes to help me build a 10 by 15 wooden structure to walk on, how much more help are you and I going to need when we're trying to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? This is a community project. You weren't meant to do this alone. You weren't meant to do this. Don't let your pride stop kingdom expansion. Here's the thing. Let me, let me, um, <clears throat> let me just get you excited for a second. This is why we have grow groups. This is the core of it, is that we have opportunities for you to be with other believers and to disciple them, and they disciple you, and you're forced to disciple each other. And it's a beautiful thing to do in community, but even one step further, we want to accomplish the majority of our outreach through these grow groups. And so we have six pillars that we talk about all the time. We talk about with our grow group leaders. These are the six pillars of our, our grow groups. This is kind of what Each grow group looks a little different, but they all got to strive to have these six pillars. So we talk about being gospel-centered and discipleship-focused and and to multiply, to have apprentices, to to grow up those apprentices and to multiply into new groups. We talk about being intergenerational. We talk about, ultimately, um, to be family Family looks different for each group, but, but the, we're a church family. And so we want to not just be about a one hour a week meeting, but we want to have relationships. We want to disciple each other outside. Start Bible studies, serve each other, take care of each other's kids, love each other, whatever. And, and then the last one is the one that I want to mention. And we call this adoption. And this is our form of outreach. And, and people have struggled to get their minds around it because they say, what does this mean? Do we um, like just do some shoe boxes and send them to vets over or, or soldiers overseas or whatever? I'm like, well, you can do that if you want. And people like try to take their, their experience in serving in other churches and put them into this and say, well, here's what we've done in the past. And I say, no, it's, it's simpler than even that. Um, well, well, okay, so what do we do? And I say, well, you can um, pray and, and seek um, to bless a specific group of people. It could be a neighborhood. It could be an apartment complex. It could be a business. It could be a nonprofit. It could be anyone, coworkers, anyone that you have that you you can pray for and serve as a group. And it's like, okay, uh, yeah, that's a little bit foreign, but okay, we'll try it. Um, do you have any um, Do you have any instructions on how to even get to that place to choose that group? And it's like, oh my God, I, can't, I can't choose the, the group for you. And I say, in this most simplest form, here's what it is. And this is this is what what I'm getting at. The most simplest form. And we don't think this way, so it's hard. When you get together with your grow group, you can sit there and you can pray and you can trust that we as a nation of priests and with the Holy Spirit in us, we have a sphere of influence. Every one of us has coworkers, more than likely. We got family, we got neighbors. And, and, and so pray, who can you reach out to that this group can come and bless and support? And this is mind boggling for people because it's one thing for us to get off the pews and go reach out by ourselves individually, but we've never even dreamed of having a whole nother group of people from the church there to back us and support us and go bless our coworkers. We're thinking, it'd be crazy for me to reach out to my coworker. But now I'm starting to think, well, what? What do we do? This grow group's here to go bless my coworker? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Think about the power 
of one small group of people. When everyone's on mission individually, but together we bless what God's doing in each person's life. The gospel can spread like wildfire when we recognize the power of a group of people in tune with God's spirit, led by God's word, wanting to get the gospel out there because every one of us knows people right now who need the gospel. And maybe we're shy by ourselves, but our whole group can come and bless. And maybe it's not that we all show up at their house with a Thanksgiving turkey. Maybe that's not it. Maybe one person's doing the work, but others are praying and lifting them up. There's all kinds of spiritual work to be done. But you got to start thinking that way. This is a community project. The church is a beautiful thing. People say, well, how does Crosspoint work? Like, um, what's the government structure like? Where, where do the people have authority? And we say, we give people the power and authority in the areas that are absolutely biblical and needed. And that is in outreach, in service, in doing the actual work of the ministry. Nobody really wants to decide, should we have gray paint on the walls or tan paint? And if there are a couple who want to decide that, we'll gather them and they can decide it. But we don't need four-hour meetings to decide what color the carpet should be. We need the people to have power and authority in the things that God commissioned them to, and that is to make disciples. So we don't have business meetings. We have family meetings. And that's where the church is the church. And you meet in your grow group, and you've got a group of people on mission in this city. Crosspoint will never probably will never have will never be the church that when you walk in and you see five banners on the wall about all our amazing outreach ministries because it's all kind of covert. It's all happening under the scenes. But if you got 15 grow groups, 20 grow groups, 30 grow groups, eventually 50, 60 grow groups and if they're all with that mindset on mission reaching their coworkers, the gospel will spread like wildfire. You won't stop the kingdom from blowing through this city. Verse 19, getting close to the end. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Number five, don't take hate personal. Don't take it personal. The haters did a few things. Number one, they called them names. They jeered at them. You ever been jeered at? You ever been mocked? You ever been insulted? Number two, the haters hated says they despised him. Anyone ever despise you? Oh, like, gosh, what, you hate me? Like, eh, I didn't, I, it just stinks thinking someone hates you. It's not good. Number three, they questioned him. What is this thing you're doing? You ever had a friend or spouse, when you tell them an idea or something that you're doing, they're like, what are you doing again? And even by the tone, you're just like, oh man, I'm just depressed. I don't even want to answer you. Like, you're just questioning. And by questioning, you're saying you think what I'm doing is stupid. Number four, they accused him. Are you rebelling against the king? Go back to Ezra chapter four. This is where Ezra, 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 Ezra chapter four. And you'll see this. I believe it's verse 12. Um, The king of Persia had stopped, had halted. Ezra was going to go and help rebuild Jerusalem. This is like 13, 14 years before Nehemiah. And the king had stopped the work because a group of people had got together and said, have you looked through the the catalogs of history and saw that this wicked people, the Israelites, have a wicked city called Jerusalem and they've done all kinds of rebellious and wicked things against the king. And the king said, oh, wow, I didn't know all this. And he said, end the work. And so you got Tobiah who's sitting back saying, 
man, I wanted to be part of the Jews that came back and rebuilt the city. And I remember when the king said, no, nobody's going to build the city. But then he overturned that, and Ezra went with a whole bunch of people to start rebuilding the city. Well, guess what? I'm going to accuse you of being the punks that we experienced 14 years ago. I'm, I'm going um, to say, are you rebelling against the king? Should we send a little letter to the king? Because that king said no before. He's put a halt to it before. Why don't we just stir some things up? Think about the insecurities just striking through Nehemiah. He's like, oh no, we've been through this before. This could turn out bad. Today, we would say something like, I'm going to sue you. If you're in that conversation and someone's like, I want to put an end to this right now. I'm going to sue you. I'm taking you to court. And that's what we say to strike fear in each other, right? That's what the world does. But that's essentially what they're saying when they say, are you rebelling against the king? Here's the thing. You've got to understand, you can't take hate personal because it's not you that they hate ultimately. It's God in you. And I learned this early in ministry. Here's what happens. When you mature as a disciple maker, when you put yourself out there, when you serve God, you will become a lightning rod and conduit. And you got to recognize both of them and the power of both. Lightning rods, they have obviously the ability to attract lightning. They're metal sticking up in the air. When lightning strikes, when someone's going to, boom, get hit, it hits the lightning rod. Conduit, conduit can be used in walls. It's used for electrical stuff. It's just an avenue for something to go inside and to be safe. And it's the it's the passageway for that to happen. You are, as a disciple maker, you are a lightning rod for the haters hate of God, but you are also a conduit for God's love to them. And you got to recognize you will take, you will deflect hate that you're like, what, what, what? And I learned this early in ministry because I'd get letters on church doors. I remember I used to hate going out in Utah and seeing um, the front of the church door because I was scared someone would have a letter up there from, we had traveling Christian, traveling Muslims. We had all kinds of people who just post hate mail. And I'd be like, oh, I still got a little box of my hate mail um, that I look at just for fun sometimes. And I remember thinking like, I'm a brand new pastor. They don't even know me. I've never even met these people. And they're saying all this stuff about me. And I realized, like, they don't hate me. And if they, if they do, whatever. But ultimately, they hate the God that I serve. So don't take it personal. Recognize that this is actually a privilege to some degree, to be hated on sake of God's behalf. But then on the flip side, you've got to recognize, okay, don't let my, the fact that I'm a lightning rod for haters hate because of the God they see in me stop me from being a conduit of the love that God has for them. I'm going to take their hate towards God as they prove their sinful selves, but I've got to make sure that I give them not hate back, but the love of God back because I'm still the conduit even if I'm at the very same time a lightning rod. Of course, all through scripture, you see people in this pattern. So what you're experiencing isn't different. You remember, you remember King David? <laughs> Dude was mocked and jeered. You remember uh, Michael? David's dancing in the street, doing his thing. And it says that she despised him in her heart as he going down the street with the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember little Shimmy? Remember Shimmy running alongside, throwing rocks at him? The men are like, with David, the mighty men? warriors killed thousands of people. They're like, should we chop his head off? And he's like, no, maybe the Lord's speaking through him. Stinks. You look at uh, the other patriarchs of the faith, the heroes of the faith, Hebrews um, chapter 11, 
You, you see verse 38, and it says that these men, these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, were mocked and jeered. They were flogged. And it says the world was not worthy of them. Of course, you look at Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Silent, yet he was mocked. He was jeered. He was beaten. He killed. None of it. Listen, listen, listen. These heroes of the faith, and of course, Jesus above all, they kept walking. They knew the hate was coming, but they had a higher purpose. They kept walking. They, they, they didn't stop because they were haters. The will of God wasn't thwarted. But that's a decision you and I get to make. I would tell you this. I wish I could water this down for you. I wish I could tell you the more you mature and the more you decide, the easier it's going to get. No, it'll probably get harder. But I would simply say this. Choose pain. Because Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my present sufferings for your sake that I might ultimately fulfill or be filled up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's not that the cross wasn't enough. He's just saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to get beat. You're going to get hurt. You're going to be hated like he was hated. Jesus promised it. Me, Paul, I'm experiencing it. And I rejoice that I have that kind of unity with him. Don't think you're going to hang out with a guy killed on a cross and somehow be loved and praised and never hated. Last but not least, verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Last thing we see is you can point haters to a better king. So the haters said, hey, are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah ultimately says, the God of heaven, the God of heaven. This is what you see over and over and over and over and over in Nehemiah. Whenever the earthly king is brought up, Nehemiah points to a heavenly king. The earthly king addresses Nehemiah, remember early in chapter 2, and says, hey, what do you want? And it says, Nehemiah stopped and he prayed. He went straight to his heavenly king. He went to a better king. You see here, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to accuse you. I'm going to say, what are you rebelling against the king on earth? And he says, I got a king in heaven. I got a God in heaven. I'm going to point to the bigger, the better king. And ultimately he says that you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Remember, that's a reference to Ezra chapter 2, verse 60 again. So just in case Tobiah forgot what happened 14 years earlier, he's reminding him, you ain't part of this family. You ain't part of this family. But don't, don't miss this. This is, this is one of those underlying beauties of the whole book of Nehemiah. It's about restoring where? Where on earth is he restoring? Jerusalem. And 400 years after this, this is like a pre-John the Baptist thing. He's preparing the way for a a man who's ultimately going to give his life in Jerusalem so that people can be part of the family of God, so that no one has to stay on the outside and say, you got no portion, you got no right to heaven, the heavenly city, because of what Jesus did on the cross. Let me me just wrap it up here. I was going to share another story, but I'll, um, I'll let you guys go. Just remember, you're going to be a disciple maker there will be kingdom collisions darkness and the light so don't be uh, surprised when you're caught in the crossfire but remember the kingdom of god is built on the backs of haters you and i as paul says in colossians and ephesians we were all and romans we were all children of wrath we hated god 
by our lifestyle, by our sinful heart. We were spiritually dead. We were the haters that we see and say, look at that hater. We were that to God. And Jesus rescued us and he saved us through the cross. And the kingdom of God took root in our hearts and has been growing in our lives. And so remember, if God can do that to you, he can do it to the people who right now seem to oppose his very work that he's wanting to do in them. And they don't even know it. But God's got a bigger plan. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that throughout the past 2,000 years, whenever uh, opposition has um, pushed your church up against the wall, whenever it seemed like this thing should crumble, God, you have shown um, your kingdom to flourish and expand and thrive in what seems like the hardest conditions. And so, Father, we know persecution breeds expansion. And so I pray, Father, that um, we, in a time of relative comfort in America in 2018, would get uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, that we would reach out to those around us, that we would take the calling to be disciple makers serious, that we wouldn't overthink it, that we wouldn't sit in our insecurities this week and say, I can't do this, but we would simply have this thought all through the day. How can I help? person I encounter next to follow Jesus. Father, give us that thought, give us that heart. Whether it's simply encouraging them, whether it's shining a light, whether it's inviting them to church, whether it's sharing the gospel, there's so many ways to do it, so many parts to it. And Father, I just pray that your spirit would save souls and expand your kingdom here in Salina. We love you. We thank you for the cross. Thank you that it's still power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.